0: I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues from Say Her Name and Me Too to the war on civil rights and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. This past year has been marked by the epic defining twin pandemics of deadly police violence on the one hand and COVID-19 on the other.
1: In Chicago, 68%
0: of COVID-19 deaths are African-American. In Louisiana, it's 70%, though they're just 30% of the population in both places. These ongoing crises reflect vulnerabilities that are historically structured and politically reinforced. From the gaping disparities in infection and death by COVID to the horrific consequences of racialized policing and punishment, we've seen how disproportionate Black death, facilitated by structural racism, is accepted as a natural feature of the status quo. The devastating impact of these combined pandemics in the health of Black women, girls, and femmes was made tragically clear last December in the death of Dr. Susan Moore. Dr. Moore was one of a small number of black women working as a licensed physician in the United States, a profession where she had increased exposure to contracting the coronavirus. After being admitted into the Indiana University hospital system with COVID symptoms, Dr. Moore's condition worsened quickly. He further stated,
2: you should just go home right now and I don't feel comfortable giving you any more narcotics. I was in so much pain from my neck. My neck hurt so bad. I was crushed. He made me feel like I was a drug addict. And he knew I was a physician. I don't take narcotics. No I was hurting.
0: But even as her symptoms grew more severe, her pleas for care were ignored. She was told to go home, even as her breathing became more labored and as further complications from COVID-19 developed
2: spoke to patient advocate who left me wanting. There's not much I can do. So I started asking, send me to another hospital where they can treat me. And if they're not going to treat me here properly, send me to another hospital. Next thing I know, I'm getting a stat CT of my neck with and without contrast. The CT went down a little bit into my lungs and you could see new pulmonary infiltrates new uh, lymphadenopathy all throughout my neck. And all of a sudden, yes, it'll treat your pain. You have to show proof that you have something wrong with you in order for you to get the medicine. I put forward and I maintain. If I was white, I wouldn't have to go through that.
0: Soon thereafter, Dr. Moore died. Her tragic death is a familiar, horrifying tale for Black women. It shows that class, education, geographic location, even being a doctor cannot insulate Black women from the rampant racism and sexism prevalent in healthcare. Indeed, research shows that in the short term and the long term, Black women are more likely to experience consequential impacts from COVID-19. But that disproportionate impact is no surprise when we know that black women are also three to four times more likely than white women to die during childbirth. Moreover, black women experience what's called weathering, a term originally articulated by Arlene Geronimus, a process by which our bodies age faster than white women's due to chronic stress linked to the intersection of racism and sexism. These conditions constitute the hallmark of Black women's erasure, literal erasure. We're subject to disproportionate injustice from a range of overlapping institutions, healthcare being one of the most significant among them. And yet in the face of that injustice, we get relatively little structural, institutional, and even interpersonal support. What would it take to address and deconstruct this misogynoir, a term coined by Moya Bailey and Trudy, in the healthcare industry? What pictures can we paint of the current ways that the industry apprehends Black women and how these ways are related to racism and sexism we've suffered throughout our history? What purchase does the frame of medical industrial complex add to the experiences of Black women confronting Miss Segenoir in seeking the most basic of rights, the right to survive. We know that when it comes to the other pandemic we faced last year, that of police violence, that we've begun to understand that racism is fundamental and constitutive of the entire enterprise, isolated and insulated by the blue wall. What do we need to do to catalyze that same understanding in healthcare? Where misogynoir lurks behind the white coat. In this frank conversation about the role of misogynoir in U.S. healthcare, I'm honored to be joined by the revolutionary voices of Dr. Karen Scott, an epidemiologist, educator, and obstetric doctor. Dr. Gail Wyatt, my colleague at UCLA, and a psychologist and board certified sex therapist. Dr. Alicia Liggett, a board-certified family medicine doctor with a clinical practice based in New York City, and Dr. Joya Creer Perry, the founder and president of the National Birth Equity Collaborative. My guests share the struggles that they've had working in a system that was largely built on the degradation and exploitation of Black people. They also discuss their own experiences being ignored talked down to and dehumanized in medical settings, even being doctors themselves. We began by reflecting on Dr. Moore's unjust passing and the lessons it teaches us as we strive to build a more equitable healthcare system. So here we have it. Despite her pleas for assistance, she wasn't seen as a credible source of information about what was going on in her own body. Seems not to have been treated with an iota of compassion or, or empathy. I mean, there's so much here. Um, I wanna just get your initial reactions to this heartbreaking video. Uh, Karen, what, what
3: do you see here? It reminded me of um, it reminded me of when I went to the emergency room last year twice. The second time I went, still not getting the pain medication that I needed, and even having to tell, having my own COVID doulas who are midwives, just for someone else to advocate for me as a Black woman physician in the same city where I went to get care, seek care, and they don't. I I realize how much the world hates Black women. I mean, that's honestly how I felt and how much we are discarded and disregarded and seen as subhuman. So much so that the lack of responsiveness to our incredible pain that occurs with COVID, you have to perform. And I did the same thing. I asked the nurse, I said, I'm not seeking drugs. I'm such pain. I can't even be my most optimal self. I have to tell you first, I'm not a drug seeker. So I feel that and it's cr- it's crushing.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from, the the need to perform outside of the known script that they see you in. Even when you are in your most desperate, Circumstance it is also part of the burden it's part of the production of misogynoir
4: uh Gail what, what do you see it was devastating to see and to hear her in such pain that she could barely speak and to still have to prove that she is not a part of three assumptions that I heard one is that she was a drug addict second that Black women are impervious to pain, that we can endure pain uh, beyond uh, the human, almost like the John Henry syndrome, if you know the old fable. And it's, it's relevant to men and to women that we can take more than most. And third, though she didn't display the anger, I am almost sure that her Perseverance was interpreted as angry. And you know, the angry Black woman is one that's so well known and also that intimidates men and women in the larger healthcare system, almost any system. And I think that what she was having to prove was that she was none of those, almost by demonstrating through her dying body uh, that she really needed help.
0: Yeah. And, you know, uh, Gail, you you pointed out the interpretation of, of Black women when we're advocating for ourselves as being angry. You know, the fact that even women are not immune from being interpreted as being dangerous, even when they are completely incapacitated, is such a dramatic illustration of how our bodies scream threat even when our bodies are dying. Alicia, I want, I want to come to you just to get your sense of what you saw in that.
1: Yeah, I mean, you could just feel the gravity of her experience, what she was going through. You could hear the desperation in her voice, the fact that she couldn't even really speak in full sentences. You know, as everyone had said who spoke previously that, you know, this was a dying woman who's just basically crying out for help. And the fact that, you know, the number of the numerous people that care for individuals in the hospital, there was an, not a single person who could advocate for this dying patient. There's not a single individual there who could, you know, speak and advocate on her behalf that maybe the plan of care should have been changed or modified to accommodate her. Uh, not anyone who could provide an alternative perspective around this narrative that they were creating about her, this false narrative about her being drug seeking and about her you know, fabricating her pain. You know, that just makes me sad that with the thousands of people that work in a hospital and I'm sure the dozens of people that were on her care team, that there wasn't a single person who could speak to any of those things and she just died senselessly. And also, you know, just hearing her, it it just reminds me this, this could be my mother or my sister or my friend or a colleague. It could be me, you know? I was also that person who was afraid to die when I was birthing my son, and that fear that you feel, and also that sense that you need to silence yourself, that you need to make yourself smaller, even though you're someone who traditionally has a lot of power and is used to using your voice. That you need to quiet yourself. That you need to justify how you're feeling and your experience in your own body. That you can't. It can't just be taken for face value. That you have to somehow
0: perform that constant burden. You know, of performance. Performance against the stereotype. Performance against the expectation. Performance against the script. There is. There is no escape. Death is basically the only escape from it. And as such a a abiding condition of our lives, the, the fact that we're only starting to witness public discourse about it is just another layer. And Julia, I want I want to come to you because you co-wrote a piece in the Washington Post about Dr. Moore's ordeal. And I was really struck by so much of it, but one, to say that if a physician can't be heard by her own peers to save her life, then who will listen? Who will be held accountable? So what was it that was so important to lift up and what do you hope will be the future that is grounded in this tragedy? If we don't want Dr. Susan Moore's death to be in vain, what has to happen? What message needs to be heard and what has to happen?
5: Well, you know, I think people are familiar now because of the murder of George Floyd, of seeing actual police violence, right? Of like watching a policeman murder someone. We used to hear about it, but we had mass. Um, protest after people sat at home and watched his murder and saw racism with their own eyes. Because all of us knew when we're watching Susan, Dr. Susan Moore, we know it's going to happen. It's a tragedy that we already know and can feel. She feels so familiar to me, that her cadence, her voice, the way she's explaining things. That she could be one of my friends. She could be us. She could be, you know, so I felt so familiar, but I also felt like I was watching a slow tragedy, right? Like watching a morality play. That's what it felt like watching George Floyd as well the murder of George Floyd. And that's what it feels like when I watch Dr. Susan Moore. So I'm hoping people can see the tie between the way that racism is in the prison industrial complex and mass incarceration and police violence and deeply embedded in our healthcare system. That here is a woman who knew who to ask for. She knew as a physician, she knew the right words to use. She probably made a debate with herself about if she should even tell them any of this stuff, right? She probably started with, maybe I just won't even tell them I'm a doctor. I'm just going to see what happened. Then they started cutting up. So then she started trying to use her big fancy words that she knew. And I will say this, we know that people blow you off with a CAT scan. That's the doctor way of saying, ain't nothing wrong with you because you can't really find pain with a CAT scan. So it's like a, it's a way, and then he did this to blow her off and it showed actual things that were wrong with her. Right. And so then he had to treat her pain. He had to accommodate, he still didn't treat her actual, what was killing her. Right? He still didn't do the other things that she was asking. So it's still this opportunity for us to watch a person who should still be here, no longer here, hear her words, hear her say, she maintains, were she not a Black woman, she would still be here. And that's a fact that we should all embrace and then do something differently about.
0: Nobody is credible in this body, in this system. The, 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 the fact that she was a Black woman trumped everything. So those who frame um, the disparate outcomes that we face in terms of uh, lack of knowledge, in, in terms of how to navigate, lack of access you know, to good health care, all of these are ways of denying what it is that we saw Susan Moore having to deal with right the fact that she was a doctor made no difference whatsoever so i'm wondering for all of you what ways your own personal encounter with the medical establishment shapes what you eventually were able to see more clearly and to dedicate your professional lives to addressing and so joya since since um you have the floor, I'm gonna ask you first, when you think back in your encounters as a black women, woman in the healthcare you know, system, what were your earliest observations that made you know, this is gonna be different for me than it would be for a similarly situated white woman and I am going to have to navigate this fact.
5: Even before I had the words and the language around racism, I knew that I was treated differently based upon my skin color. Like I was clear and even it's not something that you're, you know, all of our parents tell us you have to be twice as smart, do all those things, but it was just something innately I knew even in healthcare. So when I became pregnant as a college student, I knew I needed to navigate that system with help, with support. I could not just show up as a 21 year old pregnant person to any old doctor. I had to go to someone who my mother knew and picked and a place that the people knew Miss Carolyn. She was the pharmacist at the hospital, so she could help try to protect me because if I just went there by myself, all kinds of things could happen. And I knew that without even understanding misogynoir, without understanding racism, just knowing I needed the protection and the favor of someone who has given her time and energy in this space. And so they valued my mother because of her work, her labor. Allowed them to see me as more human, right? They love Miss Carolyn. She's a good pharmacist at this hospital. Okay, well, love on her daughter like you love on, on, right? And so that entree into receiving care, into knowing that my peers and my colleagues had two friends, one who had um, a a fetal demise while we were in college and was told to go home and wait for the baby to, to come on its own and was not given any other options. I knew, even though I didn't know enough about medicine, I knew there had to be other options, right? Like they just give you one choice and then another friend who had to have a baby an hour away from where we lived because no other places would see her. So all these early interactions with the healthcare system that devalue black women. I knew when I got pregnant at 21, I had to have protective factors to help ensure that I was able to survive my pregnancy. And so I wanted to become a physician to help mitigate, like the system shouldn't make it so hard that you have to plan for how you're gonna navigate it just to have a baby.
0: And that's so revealing that your desire to become a physician was influenced in part by how you knew you had to navigate as a black woman. But then you find out, we'll come back around to this course. but you found out that uh, not so simple in, in terms of going in and doing the right thing. And, you know, there are so many ways that we can think of these conversations in, in parallel, because, you know, I go to law school thinking, OK, we need to have more lawyers Because the law is really jacked up in the the way that it treats Black people. And then you get there and and it slowly dawns on you, uh, okay, this isn't a
2: defect.
0: This is kind of built this way, right? So then the, the project is bigger than just being a better doctor. You basically have to be about deconstructing the thing that you're trying to be a part of which all of you in various ways have been about so alicia i know you have written powerfully about your own experience of being as you said reduced to a black birthing body so can you explain what your experience was and what you what you meant by that reduction
1: Yeah. So as somebody who was born and raised in um, in Seattle, Washington, and who was really kind of educated in mostly white spaces, it wasn't really until after I had my son and I had actually started hearing the experiences of my patients and in a way reliving my trauma through my patient stories that it actually dawned on me that something was not right here. So even you know years into my career even despite feeling like having had you know experiences in healthcare personally where I just didn't feel well after I had left the doctor's office I felt like I had been devalued but I couldn't really quite identify or have the terminology to really pinpoint what it was that I felt or what I experienced. Why it was that the doctor wouldn't look at me or wouldn't acknowledge my story when I'm trying to explain to her what I'm experiencing in my body. Or even when I'm like crying out in pain during a gynecological procedure that, you know, the doctor just gets up and leaves the room. No acknowledgement on a human level that somebody is suffering and that you're perhaps inflicting pain on someone's body. So, It wasn't until I had started to hear these stories again and again and again from my patients, women of color, that I realized that there is a silent epidemic here. This isn't something that just I experienced. It's not a one-off, you know, and then I kind of started probing more family, friends, colleagues, everybody has a story. So I really felt like for me, it was important to tell my story, mostly because you know, in my family and in my community, I feel as though silence is golden. It's important for people to keep their stories, particularly as it relates to vulnerability to themselves, to keep, especially as it relates to health, keep those things hidden and suppressed and not speak about those things, not speak about weakness, especially if you're a black woman, to kind of be perceived as being weak is something that is, is, was not seen as favorable in my family. So I felt like, you know what, it's time for me to speak out about my experience and write about it. And when I did that, the response was overwhelming in terms of the number of people who they themselves told me, I didn't even realize that my experience was terrible. I knew it was bad, but I couldn't identify or commiserate with other women who had been through something similar when they also had birthed their children. And these are professional women. These are educated women. These are people who, you would expect would be able to identify, like myself, identify racism when you're confronted with it. But racism has a a different face in healthcare. And I think that's why it's so difficult for people to identify. And that's the reason I feel like it's so important for us to share our stories, to share our narratives, because we can use that as an opportunity to uplift one another, to support one another, and also to be impactful in terms of how we move through healthcare for future generations.
0: And when you look back on it, there's a snapshot of you on, on the table that you described. Share just a little bit of what that snapshot is that allows people to see through your eyes how you were being treated.
1: So it wasn't until I actually birthed my son that I realized that, you know, even over the course of my life, there were several instances where I had experienced healthcare mediated trauma. When I was a college student, I recall having this procedure, as I mentioned, and the doctor just took no care with my body whatsoever. She was so rough and aggressive. And I just didn't understand, you know, as a young 20 year old, what I had done to kind of deserve this kind of treatment. I wasn't angry. I made myself as small as I could. I followed all of her instructions. So to me, it wasn't clear what I had done. And I left there so dejected and it just made me feel like I never wanna go to doctors ever again. Like these are like the worst people on earth, like barbarians that they can just take so little care with people's bodies. And even in my pregnancy, as a physician myself, seeing my physician, her colleague, who wasn't aware that I was a physician, And her exam, again, like she literally just left me exposed on the table with my legs literally in the air, facing the door, you know, eight months pregnant. I could barely get up off the table after the exam. No explanation as to what she had found or the conclusions that she had come to after her examination. And she just left the room. She's like, okay. And I was like, uh, (laughs) and I was alone. I was so confused. Like, did I do something? Does my breath smell? I don't really know, you know, like, I just wasn't really sure what had happened there and didn't even feel the courage to address it with her. Uh, but just her bedside manner was terrible. And I wasn't sure, if it, is it just her, is it me, is it racism? I'm still trying to figure out what it is here.
0: And I'm sure that is also a question that a lot of our listeners are grappling with. Like, how do I read it? How do I see the role that my race might be playing inside a profession that hasn't been known to be necessarily supportive of the best practices for women? So in some ways, this is a matter of unpacking some of the historical ways that Black women have been treated in the medical profession broadly, but within gynecology in particular. So, uh, one of the historical dimensions of this is, of course, that it's not new. Uh, Gail, I want to come to you um, to, to reflect upon the old days as you and I experienced things, where um, some of the stuff that, that we're hearing now in like this post-segregated, you know, hospital system is perhaps disappointing, but it's not unfamiliar.
4: Not unfamiliar. It's part of the history of most of the organizations we find now so progressive. But, you know, I have a history. And (laughs) being 21 and pregnant for the first time in a very young marriage, went to the hospital in Nashville, Tennessee, a a city that was on fire in terms of civil rights. And here I was, um, not really expecting to be treated like a diva, but to be treated in a humane fashion was what I had hoped for. I couldn't get into any Lamaze classes because they were not available to Black women. And then when I had the baby, I could not get into the La Society, did not treat or provide any services. So no one came to my room to work with me about breastfeeding. But when it came to Lamaze, I knew there would be pain. So I taught myself how to focus uh, so that I could do something that I could remember even under immense pain. So I recited nursery rhymes all through my labor in order to distract myself from pain. It was the only thing I could think of at the time knowing a little bit about psychology that I could remember no matter what. And that really got me through if I hadn't had that kind of creativity and determination that I was not gonna yell, that there was a way to get through this. And I knew that other women would learn it, but I wouldn't being in that situation. I was determined to do it for myself.
0: What is that saying about black women in reproduction that we can just drop babies um, and we don't need to learn how to nurse them. It, it's almost like the plantation origins of gynecology yes. and how black women <laughs> were situated in it is still stretching across history to even shape how black women childbearing now is treated. And probably people don't even realize that's what they're
4: rehearsing. And they don't know Kim, they don't know that those first surgeries that were done on women were done on slaves that had no anesthesia and they had multiple surgeries. One woman had 30 surgeries without anesthetic and finally died. We don't talk about the kind of systemic and historical medically unethical treatments that perfected some of the procedures that gynecologists use today. And I'm not dogging gynecologists because I'm married to one, but as a profession, Most of them leave their residencies without an acute appreciation that when a black woman looks at an obstetrician gynecologist and she knows her history, she's got to ask herself, do you know your history? Do you know that I'm assumed to be uh, without pain, without the ability to be raped for 401 years, that if I have a rape history and a rape situation, I'm going to be treated differently in the legal system than anybody, any other group? Do you know that I have a hard time telling you the truth about how many sexual partners I've had? Because I know it's just going to cement in you an appreciation for me as a hoe. So these are all things that women have to deal with to the point
0: (laughs) where they don't want to go. And you know, uh, Joy and I were talking earlier about the fact that modern gynecology owes its understanding to the torture of black women. And at the same time, we're least likely to benefit from the advances. So there's a way in which, and, and Karen, I wanna come back to you on this question. You know, we talk about the twin pandemics and one, One of the things that is happening now in our thinking about police misconduct and brutality is that there's this whole understanding that it's institutional and and it's structural. And there's this frame that we think about that protects the existing system by recruiting people in it to hold up its lives and its practices. So in policing, it's called the blue shield and much debate is had over that. There is at least an understanding that the blue shield is often being used to protect the institution, make it more difficult for it to be uh, reformed. Is there an equivalent notion of the white coat that we can build out to make people aware that the same analysis that you have around policing
3: might be applicable to healthcare. No, definitely. I became the monster I never intended to be because I didn't know the history of obstetrics and gynecology when I became an OBGYN. And I actually never wanted to be one because I remember the screams of my sisters in the South seeing their OBGYNs. And The reason why I did pursue it it was because of this relentless curiosity to understand how Black women's lives are structured, right in family, in society, in education, in labor, in relationships, in abuse, and in violence, and add on religion, um, and spirituality, and sexuality. And so, I do think that because of the ways in which our right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is so constrained and controlled in order to treat Black women the way the medical industrial complex does. It happens because we do have a white coat shield. We do have that fraternity, that brotherhood, even though there are women in our field, we have taken on the nuances, the notions, the narratives, the behaviors, the beliefs of our oppressors. And I speak a lot about being both the oppressed and the oppressor as a Black woman OBGYN. And I've also stated that Honestly, one of the best places to go to harm Black women and never be held accountable, I believe, a police officer and a physician. We lack accountability. There is a code of silence. There are people who are legacy, right? There are generations of people, even Black people, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but there are generations where this is a status symbol, but to maintain your membership, you give up a lot. And I do believe what we are seeing right now is that people are choosing right, our deaths over their comfort over their membership, over their privilege, over their power to continue to do what has always been done, right, to Black women's and Black people's bodies. But this cry, this lack of acknowledging the epidemic and actually doing something about it, I do believe is because the way we are surveilled as Black women in the healthcare system reminds me a lot of of criminals or those who've been incarcerated, previously incarcerated, like there's a felony record, we've talked about that. I always think about the electronic health record as something that is a record that follows us because we don't have opportunity to rewrite the narrative. We don't get to confront the archetypes that are in the records. The experiences of what black women say happen to them because where do we- What's an example of that?
0: Like a notation in your health record about some encounter that you had at some point can shape the future of your healthcare.
3: Right, so thank you for asking. So let's think about language, right? Difficult, challenging, agitated, aggressive, non-compliant, angry. I mean, this is the type of non-medical but now medicalized, racialized language that gets used to characterize when we assert ourselves and we want to say, no, we have the right for informed refusal. We have the right to demand more information. We actually have the right to also ask, to fire the provider and ask for another one. But when we as black women activate that power potential that every patient has, it's an affront to the entire medical industrial complex, to the entire institution itself, because they never thought that we would actually use that power that every patient has, like that unenalienable right that you have as a patient. But when we activate that, it is an affront To the powers that be and i do believe the language and the records follows us as patients so that before there is an actual person human to human encounter the team has a whole script right a whole story that they follow and when they walk into the room they're meeting the record they're not meeting the human in front of them and so i do i think there's such parallels between what's happening in the in policing of black bodies in the actual law enforcement, also in the medical-industrial complex, and the outcomes are the same: premature, you know, deaths, senseless deaths, and no one's stopping it.
0: When we left off, you were headed to medical school, right? To try to be, you know, an agent for better healthcare access and and practices for you know black women and and other people. You know, paint a paint a, a picture, give us a snapshot of what's happening in medical school that's giving you a sense that. Uh, okay, it might not be the people necessarily; it's the profession. But then you get in the profession, and you're like, "Oh yeah, and it's the people too." <laughs>
5: <Right>? <laughs> yeah, we well, you know. I just the through line between J. Marion Sims being a plantation doctor and practicing on three black women at least who were enslaved—Lucy, Betson and Arca—we have to say their names in honor that they are human beings who were experimented upon. To my medical education in the Deep South. Um, is a straight through line to me training at a medical school that had been, the hospital had been named Confederate General Memorial Hospital about 10 years before I went there. They named it that in 1956, which was almost a hundred years after the Confederacy lost. So let's be clear about what that meant, right? But then you get into class and I take my, what is in every other I don't know every other, but most other medical schools, the class is titled Embryology. My class is titled Human Prenatal Development. Just be clear about why they named it that. So in the class, my human prenatal development professor says "There we're talking about skin, there's mongoloid skin, Caucasoid skin and Negroid skin, right? So this is 1990s. This is not. I'm not. I'm. I'm old, but I'm not that old, right? And
0: I just want to point out that at this point, pretty much everywhere else in the discipline, we have accepted that race is socially constructed, not real,
5: right? So the thought that in med school it's like a holdout. And then still yesterday, still yesterday, four brothers released an article in the New England Journal of Medicine. We are four black men who are geneticists and we say race is both a social and genetic construct. Like we're still having to relitigate what we had decided upon since we completed at least the Human Genome Project. Since our president came out and said there is only one race, the human race. Yet the colonization of medicine and healthcare is so deep and so real. We were used from the beginning of Small Skulls to the Plantation, Dr. Darwin saying the title of his book is Survival of the Fittest, comma, and the Preservation of the Favored Race. The very core of our field is white supremacy, is patriarchy, is a misogynoir. So until we actually have that conversation, getting to me then, going to med school where they're still teaching that, because it is part of their curriculum. It is part of what we're taught in the books to then me going into private practice where we have this thing called peer review right? So you're talking about the clubs. So you get get hospital privileges. This is not a privilege. I earned this. This is not a country club. I I got these degrees. I made this, right? So the nature of my fighting to be in a hospital where no other body else took Medicaid patients. And here I'm in this fancy hospital. I have crown molding and hardwood floors and marble in the rooms. And the provider who I'm sharing space is an older Jewish man and I have one hallway in his fancy big office. So the CEO wants me because the, another other doctors at the hospital are taking Medicaid. I didn't know I was supposed to be racist and classist and all the other things to work at this hospital. Even though my daddy said, now they don't let color doctors work there. <laughs> I was like, I'm Ivy League educated. It's different now, dad. He was like, I bet you're gonna show you better than they could tell you. <laughs> they sure show, showed me that it's for sure that all the rules around the ways in which not only can they police our bodies as patients, but as providers, if you don't act within, if you don't take the red or blue pill, if you don't treat your patients poorly, if you don't agree that there shouldn't be poor people or people of color in these rooms. I mean, my, that same guy was going to the CEO, telling the CEO, I need you to move her out of this space because her patients are scaring my patients off. And the reason he said that is because healthcare is still deeply segregated and white folks are not used to sitting in waiting rooms with black people. Go to a waiting room right now in any healthcare facility, deeply segregated. We, by law, desegregated hospitals and schools in the 1960s but the practicality is that they are both very still highly segregated. So our belief of a devaluation of human beings based upon skin color is embedded still in how we practice medicine.
0: And, And what were the consequences for you Try trying to
5: really make real desegregation. You know, the irony is I was just trying to be me. I wasn't trying to fight anybody, honestly. I just was trying to take care of people who I thought everybody should want to take care of. They created an entire committee, reported me to the medical board. Like it became such a fight simply because I value everyone equally. And I didn't have the language at the time to be able to articulate that. What racism is, what it means to say, I ask you for a list of why you should be able to write, what quality improvement is. These are the things that you normally write people up around. None of the things you've written me up around meet this list and what you write me back is, we just think you have poor judgment. You're never gonna think I have good judgment. Look at me. I just couldn't understand why we were continuing to have this circular, I didn't understand power. I didn't understand the rules. And so it made me have a whole new career. So I do, they created an advocate out of me when I wasn't even trying to be an advocate. I just want to take care of some patients in New Orleans, go to, go to <laughs> jazz fest and relax. <laughs>
0: reminds me of Coretta Scott King, who said, you know, when we started, you know, the bus boycott, we weren't even asking for integration. Right. All oh. we wanted was a more equitable segregation. Right. No, y'all wanted to push us back. And then we wanted to push back on that. Okay, so you created advocates out of all of us. Exactly. Right? you know, in some ways it feels pre-civil rights, pre-intersectionality, pre-critical. I mean, the the idea that on such a subjective basis, they thought it was legitimate to build this structure to exclude you when in the background, they've already said stuff about your patients being unwelcome. It's like the sense of being immune or impervious, just not having to abide by any of the racially equitable expectations because you wear a white coat is breathtaking. And yet it's still
5: real. And it's similar to... Um, in the policing world where for the last 15 years, they've been doing a lot of trainings, We do a lot of training, but there's no accountability. So if you train a bunch of implicit bias, you train a bunch of anti-racism, but then people still check it off and go back to their job, we've done nothing, right? We've assumed that the reason they're racist is because they just didn't know. And maybe for some people, but for most people, they just do it because they can. So how are we gonna hold that system accountable? Because they can't, they should not be able to.
0: And, and this is also why there's so much pushback on some of the conceptualizations and tools of accountability, right? Because if training is not enough, the way that you show it's not enough is that you actually show how the outcomes Mm -hmm. are a product of implicit biases, Mm -hmm. uh, structured inequalities, intersectional uh, barriers. So the pushback now across the country in many states is, well, okay, you can't talk about that stuff. Uh, (laughs) We put a in the middle of this huge pandemic where where bodies are dropping left and right. There was actually an effort to say, but you know what? We can't talk about structural racism. And
5: I thought about you, honestly, about when they were trying to get rid of taking intersectionality out of the courses and thinking about my own experience of being a medical student, 23 years old, and them saying mongoloid, Caucasoid, negroid. The reason they want not to say your language. They don't want somebody to teach intersectionality. They don't want somebody to talk about racism. They want to keep being able to say Mongoloid, Caucasoid, Negroid, right? So when we bring in actual facts, then they say, oh, we're making up stuff. No, actually that was made up.
0: One of the other things that gets made up that's part of this is that the disparities are a product of race as a variable. Alicia, I want to come to you about this because you have a sense about why saying race but not racism is part of the problem.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very curious because, you know, when I was a medical student and even as a resident, when you're reading kind of all of this academic scholarship around health conditions, even if there's just one or two things that you know about patients, you always know their age and their race. But then the curious piece is that there isn't ever an explanation as to how you can interpret explaining somebody's race or or displaying that really means. Oftentimes there's this assumption because there's no explanation around the social determinants of health and around structural racism and how race is really a proxy for that. That there's this assumption that there's some sort of behavioral flaw in these individuals that in most of these studies, it's usually people of color who end up with these disparate outcomes. You know, even now we hear a lot of buzzwords around structural racism, but in many cases that's never really um, pontificated upon. We know that structural racism really means that there's you know issues with how resources are allocated and how they're distributed among populations, where um, individuals who are white usually are the individuals who are the benefactors of that, how there's laws and policies in place that really favor and prop up white supremacy in all of our societal systems. But that's not really ever explicitly said, right? And the reason why I say that is because when I went to my doctor and she told me that I had gestational diabetes diabetes, I was so flabbergasted, you know, because I'm like, I'm so healthy. I exercise. I, you know, I eat right. um, I've done everything I'm supposed to do to stay healthy. And she's like, well, it's because, you know, you're African-American. That's basically what she told me. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? And she couldn't really say, she couldn't really explain that right? So that's really, you know, the nuance I think that's missing from the argument when we say, oh, it's because this person's Black that they have this issue. Even now I have several friends that are pregnant. They're all of advanced maternal age. But now all of a sudden there's this trend where all of my friends who are Black women are taking aspirin. Many of them are first time moms. Many of them are completely healthy, no prior medical issues. And when I asked them, well, what did your doctor tell you was the reason that you needed to take aspirin during your pregnancy? Oh, it's because I'm black. Okay, well, did they explain to you like what specifically, apart from being just having like brown skin was your risk factor? No. So this is a major issue I think in medicine that we really need to be explicit in our medical research, also in our scholarship about why we use race and what it's a proxy for and being explicit about racism as being the cause for these disparities.
0: Yeah. You know, it's such a a marker of what happens when racism is taken off the table. You know, the racism is a process. It is more of a, a verb than a noun. When they take off the table or never open themselves to a conversation about the processes of racism, what we get is this static categorization, you know, of race as a variable. And that in turn, places the difference in our body and we are the site of the intervention rather than the institution itself being a site of the intervention so they get to get the credit for well we're trying to shape the intervention you know trying to be race sensitive but in doing so they're actually perpetuating the denial of the function of racism that contributes to these outcomes Karen, what's your sense about where do we build out from the observations that you all have been making about the limitations and what they produce?
3: Yeah, I I mean, um, like where do you begin? Like we could start, right, we know about redlining, we know, and I've written about philanthropic redlining, and let's talk about epistemic redlining, like that is what medical school has done. It has excluded experts like Dr. Wyatt, you, Dr. Crenshaw from even being a requirement or a prerequisite to get into medical school. They discard humanities for caring for human beings <laughs> to prioritize all the things that reinforce that race is a biological construct or that marginalized people, something is innately deficient with us because of either our skin color or our genitals or our body size, right? Medical school really is just a reinforcement of white patriarchal supremacy. like period. And even if we introduce critical race theory, intersectionality, reproductive justice, the folks, the actual experts are not even being invited to actually teach the very discourses and concepts that they created. It's being co-opted by academic institutions who want to use rhetoric to lure Black and brown or people who are from you know, minoritized populations into the field. And so we would have to really dismantle it and start all over because we haven't prioritized legal studies, social sciences, humanities. We still have this right hierarchy of healthcare where the physician, right, knows all things, but sometimes it's not really there, you know, depending on what setting it is. Um, and we actually don't even include the very patient in the design and the evaluation of the health care that they are being made to pay for, whether it be through cash or public aid or employer based insurance like we've excluded the most important people in the actual care that they're seeking for something that's going on in their life. We teach this. Current generation and past generations that it is your individual behavior that is the ultimate determinant of your health. And we know that is not true. Every other discourse, right, and discipline knows that the medicine, we have been very forceful in our denial, and we discipline people for speaking out and speaking up and wanting to bring ethics and integrity and a sense of accountability and opening up the table, having more chairs at the table, redesigning a new room, like making a gate open for more people, more representation, more shared power decision-making. We don't really do that. I mean, we really actually disincentivize people from providing humane care in so many ways that people are choosing, right? Again, their career advancement over our humanity over our care uh, and it's really difficult to see that especially when that when the system's pit us right black and brown folks against each other academic versus community or you know advocacy versus policy in this institute like all the different labels that we use again to differentiate when we all are doing similar things for the outcome all right again life and liberty like thriving and not just surviving we would have to have a new hall, rehaul of the of the entire medical education system.
0: Yeah, I, I wonder what abolitionism would look like in, in health. Right? So, so um, and Gail, so you are an exception. You teach, you have access to medical students. You bring much of this knowledge that so many other medical students don't have. In terms of some of the things that we have talked about, there are two things that I just want your quick response to. One is, talked a little bit about plantation ways of framing Black women and using Black women, having survivals today, right, in gynecology and the way they treat us, but another part of what happened during the plantation system and the breeding of Black women was the development of stereotypes about um, our sexuality, about who we are, about how we do what we do, that are also in some ways uninterrupted, right, so it's not just you can drop it in the field and keep working, we don't need to teach you nothing, Um, we treat you like livestock, there's also the way our sexual has been constructed through that moment in history and that just really hasn't been taken up within the culture uh, very much at all which i think as your work suggests creates emotional uh consequences for black women and we don't talk about mental health for for black women Writ large you know say her name, many of the black women who've been killed by the police were suffering uh, from mental health challenges yet they were seen through the same sort of stereotype of the banshee, the out of control person who has to be put down. So I know that's a big a big pot there to stir but you're the only person that I know consistently <laughs> who has stirred that pot. so I'm putting that pot in front of you now.
4: Well, I'm so happy to have the opportunity to talk about it. This is such a great group of, of people to really start thinking and, and stimulating other ideas about what should be done. But I, I do have some hope, Karen, from what you're describing that's so much missing in medical education. It, it is coming. And I think in, at UCLA, to toot our horn, we are revamping the medical education system. And let me tell you, it didn't come from faculty. It came from the students. The students come to medical school now, read having known enough to know they don't know. And they figure if they don't know and they, they leave after four years or six years of residency, whatever, and still don't know, shame on them. And so they are demanding that they learn. And I think it's a wonderful opportunity to be in medical education today because finally I get an opportunity to place the work that I've been doing for the last 48 years right in that perspective. And I can go back when Kim talks about uh, how women have been treated and, and the the assumptions made. One of the assumptions is that girls who are reaching puberty have already had sex, you know, because we are just a sexual group of people. We have no morals and we don't experience pain. That all legitimized rape. And, and people don't realize that has absolutely no scientific basis. When I first started out in the 1980, I got my first Uh, NIH grant and and a K award to go along with it to study African-American sexuality. And a lot of people don't know that because they had to change the names of my research projects in order to get them funded because Ronald Reagan was the president at the time. So I have survived seven presidents, but that's another story. Let me go back to the way that young teens, Black teens were treated. If they were pregnant, it was assumed that they were pregnant because they were promiscuous, that there was nothing that they wouldn't do. And when they went to the gynecologist, I have some really heartbreaking stories of young women who went in to a gynecology examination and asked by the doctor, "Have you? has anyone ever looked at you with these devices that I have in front of you and looked at your vagina and all of the things that follow it? And they'd say no, but the, the gynecologist would use an adult speculum on them which is extremely painful, because it stretches beyond the scope of what a little girl who hasn't had sex at all should, should have to encounter. So she would have to yell out and cry, but I haven't had sex. We can't even have sex education in the public school system without getting the Board of Education to approve of that experience, that knowledge. So
0: speaking of solutions, um, in our last couple of minutes, I want to direct our listeners to some of the projects that all of you have been pursuing to address the issues that we've been talking about. So, Joya, I know you have a big project in this hopefully new administration. So could you give people a quick sense of uh, what it is and where they can get more information and support the project?
5: So, um, back in the spring, when everybody was writing what they wanted a new administration to do or a new candidate to do, the National Birth Equity Collaborative, which I lead, wrote a birth equity agenda. And our first ask was to open a White House office of sexual and reproductive health and well being. We really believe that the space to undo the harm and the belief that we must plan better, the eugenics, this idea that it's personal responsibility, that all of that starts at the highest level of government because that's where that relief was created and caused harm to our communities. In fact, if President Nixon um, had not used his um, anti-poverty strategy was family planning, where he put family planning clinics across the United States in black and brown communities, as if not having children was a way to get to justice and joy, we know that if he had in 1970 said, our anti-poverty strategy was free college, that we probably would have less poverty in the black and brown communities. So we have an opportunity to use the power of the White House to work on both domestic and global policy to undo the harm and the blaming and shaming that we do of black and brown bodies, especially black and brown women, really tying and undoing the harms that we've done for generations. So I'm excited about that. We have about 150 organizations who've signed on, a Senate letter that was led by Uh, Senator Gillibrand, Senator Warren, and Senator Booker, um, and a House side letter that was led by Congresswoman Lee and Congresswoman Kelly. Um, And we are hopeful that it will be in the, either the White House Domestic Policy Council or within the, vice president's office. It would be a great opportunity for the vice president to lean in and to build out sexual and reproductive health and well-being. Our organs are not just for producing babies. We use them for sex and for pleasure. And so that's why it's both reproductive and sexual health and well-being. And how do we undo these harms and build a better nation world? So
0: yes, yes. And Karen, you're working on a measurement. So tell folks what you're up to.
3: Yes, yeah, so we actually developed this measure last year and we actually are validating the instrument meeting, not the experiences of Black women. But what we have done is developed a soon-to-be validated patient-reported experience measure of obstetric racism, also known as the PREM OB scale. And it is a new tool that for the first time will be able to translate explanatory framework of obstetric racism, which sits at the intersections of medical racism, and obstruction violence defined by Dr. Don Davis, who's a Black women's anthropologist in Doula. With her permission, I translated that framework into patient identified quality of care domains in seven areas. And these areas have all been named, defined, and measured through Black women's lived experiences, their words, their perspectives. And then in 2020, we um, released this survey during a pandemic. So 815 Black mothers and birthing people from across 34 states in DC and 348 hospitals in the United States. Shared their experiences of seeking help and health care in a hospital for labor, birth, and postpartum in these areas called safety and accountability, social capital and kinship, autonomy, communication, information exchange, racism, empathy and humanity, and dignity and blackness and holistic care. And just the goal ultimately is now we can quantify what we. Always known and provide a quality improvement tool to hospitals, health plans, community partners, policymakers to actually now examine the associations of these adverse outcomes in relationship to the experience and impact of care through the words and perspectives and feelings of black mothers and birthing people. And my ultimate goal is to really hold like what Dr. Kirk Perry said earlier, systems accountability. So now we're inviting health plans to tie value and reimbursement to black women's reported experiences of care through this framework of obstetric racism and to stop denying what we've been saying in other disciplines and now be able to bring social sciences, humanities, public health, all of that into the QI, quality improvement space, and shift the care, shift the measure, and hopefully have a different experience for Black mothers and birthing people.
0: One of the things we know is that if it's not measured, it doesn't count. If it counts, it gets measured. So you're building up from making it count by developing the measurement. So people should uh, look for more information and, and be prepared for the information to, to actually shift our, our conversations. Alicia, uh, I know you're holding it down and keeping it strong for all the Black women that sort of find their way to your practice. Um, what do you want to leave our listeners with?
1: Yes, absolutely. So um, I founded an organization called Empower Her Health, which really focuses on empowering uh, Black women in particular to to have healthy pregnancies and also promoting healthy infants as well. Um, Part of what I do is a lot of reproductive health education. Um, A lot of it's centered around reproductive justice and providing information about health in that lens of racism and in terms of justice as well. So uh, one of the things that I'm working on now, really centering Black women's stories is very important to me, is a storytelling campaign where I'm really trying to collect stories from women of color um, about a range of reproductive health issues so that um, we as a community can start to recognize when there's experiences that we have that aren't good, that are really seated in racism or injustice or dehumanization, to be able to activate ourselves and become advocates in our own community and for our own care.
0: Wonderful. And Gail, so we we know that people can find your book. What else do you want to direct those listeners who want to learn more, know more,
4: be more of an effective advocate for Black women's well-being? Well, they can go to the website and look for the uh, Center for Culture, Trauma, and Mental Health Disparities. That's our center at UCLA. It's 16 years old, and I'm very proud of it because there are not many centers that do research on women's sexuality led by a Black woman. Over 250 research articles, both internationally in South Africa, where we have training programs as well as here in, uh, in the United States and just lots of opportunities to read on what we're doing, volunteering. But most importantly, Kim, we're all creating an image of a Black woman taking care of her business, research-wise, clinically, as personal moms, advocates. And those are images we just don't see enough of. So I'm so thrilled to have this opportunity to be on this panel with all of you. And I hope we have an opportunity to make our Constituents grow by then looking up what we're doing and caring forward. Taking care of our
0: business. I think that's going to be the subtitle of this conversation because <laughs> you all sure helped us do just that. I can't really thank all of you enough for your candor, your honesty, your thoughtfulness, and for the essential work that you all do. Intersectionality Matters is produced by Julia Sharp Levine. Today's episode was co-produced by Amarachi Anakaranye, with additional support from Rebecca Shuckman, Destiny Spruill, and the team at the African American Policy Forum. You can support us by subscribing and leaving a review, following us on social media, and joining our Patreon page for bonus episodes and exclusive content. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters.
2: Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the lawyer was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarsella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.